Hey everybody, welcome to the 1947 Rise podcast. A podcast that helps India-born US trained Indians get integrated into the Indian technology ecosystem and inspires them to move back to India to build massive tech companies and or help enable the tech ecosystem. We do this by interviewing India-born US trained Indians who have moved back to India and built massive tech companies themselves and or helped enable the tech ecosystem. All right, I'm excited to have Monish who is the co-founder and CTO of Isertis. Isertis is valued at 2.8 billion dollars. 10-year-old Isertis is a contract life cycle management company which helps clients to manage their contracts right from the request for proposals to creating a centralized repository as well as managing and storage of these contracts. Out of top 8 global companies, 5 uses Isertis. Monish, that's a pure domination and I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much Shiva. Excited to be here. I think you you have you have a very unique perspective. So I'm really really looking forward to this session. Very interesting. That's thank you for having me. The feeling is the same and so let's unpack who Monish is. Uh, I mean I went through your personal story that was featured on your story and uh, it was just fascinating. I just loved it. but would love to hear from you maybe i can you know give you like quick context maybe you can walk us through your journey from growing growing up in india to moving to the us and then moving back to india yeah and you know nothing special but also very interesting in my unique way right we we we, we come from a very you know kind of lower middle class family i remember when i was younger we were 10 people in the house the family living out of one room and one bathroom which was outside the room obviously but uh, coming from there uh, you know being being raised in a very you know very open environment i think my parents take credit coming from a and you know not to bucket um, but coming from a kind of a conservative marwadi family you know the ecosystem uh, you know my my mom was one of the first um, uh, women to take up a full time job you know you know marwadi women didn't work in those times and uh, my dad also was a you know in a little bit of a rebel in his own way you know left home came to pune for education didn't want to go into any kind of business and so on and so forth so i grew up in an environment which was very very open uh, very very understanding and caring and i think that makes a big difference in terms of what you do with the rest of your life as well um, and you have to you have to obviously you know work on your challenges we had a lot of challenges in that time but you know this support was invaluable and then i had a you know pretty actually very very nice childhood not no big events uh, uh, very straightforward you know uh, but um, uh, and then you know it was like you know ladka kya karega engineering karega so i went to engineering uh, it was very interesting not just the ladka kya karega thing because you know this was many many years ago as you can imagine i'm dating myself uh, but at that time it you know that is how the thinking was but it was interesting that my dad was actually an entrepreneur he left his job and he started a small workshop he was struggling quite a bit but he started it and he was doing this 
And it was because it was a workshop and it had something to do with mechanical engineering. I went and became a mechanical engineer, right? With the idea of, and I, I really, at that time also, I really worked, loved working with my hands, right? I was like really, um, you know, doing stuff, building stuff, creating stuff. So that's how, you know, that creativity and the openness actually helped. But uh, so I did my, uh, did my engineering, mechanical engineering, uh, and I got fascinated with computers at the same time. Um, a friend of mine, his dad was in a very senior position in a local manufacturing company. He invited us to, you know, do like in my, when I was in 11th, mm-hmm. um, he said, why don't you come and, you know, work on our EDP section? So com- software was EDP at that time, electronic data processing. And that's where I got my first kind of look at what computers were. At that time, you didn't have a PC in India, by the way. Nobody owned a PC. Um, so you forget about laptops and smartphones, right? Um, I'm really dating myself here. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I took that, you know, you know like every as, you know, person who aspired, you know, aspired to go to the US at that time, I did my GRE and went to the US. I went to the US mechanical engineering uh, in Florida, a place, beautiful, beautiful place called Boca Raton. Uh, where people went to retire, um, beautiful beaches, right? <laughs> and I had a lot of fun and I did a lot of interesting work. 90% of it was nuclear electronics and software, right? So a lot of my programming was actually assembly uh, language. A lot of it then obviously moved to Fortran because of the mechanical engineering, you know, all of the data, uh, fluid dynamics models, uh, computational fluid dynamics with CFD models. So a lot of the work, hardware work was assembly, and then the analysis work was all Fortran. That's how I grew up um, to be a software engineer, gotcha. mechanical engineer, actually working more on software than on the mechanical engineering side. Um, and it was a very interesting uh, time at that time. Lots to learn there, actually. Again, did a lot of things with my hands, you know, uh, I built the lab with my advisor pretty much on my own, uh, you know, and uh, a lot of lot of stuff to build and a lot of stuff to build in software as well. So good training for me in terms of how to bring, you know, things together to solve a problem, both hardware and software. So that was the journey. And then, you know, I promised my mom that I would come back after I finished my master's. She was worried at that time that, you know, that used to be common back then it was very common back then very common and i promised her i i'm glad i kept my promise i came back right and it was very interesting to come back and then figure out what to do so that's the story you know not very interesting but i had a lot of fun growing up. oh it is fascinating and then so when you initially moved back uh you know, were there doubts in mind? Uh, how did you navigate the move? And then how did uh, ICERTIS uh, come about? Yeah. So so this was, you know, I, I actually went halfway to my PhD in Boca Raton. Um, and then I said, this is really not for me. I was getting a little bit antsy. And, you know, there were lots of opportunities, by the way, at that time, you know, especially mechanical engineering um, you know, we were working on some really fascinating stuff with nuclear electronics. So um, lots of oil companies. So I had a couple of offers. And then I said, no, I promised my mom I should come back. And this is very interesting. So let's see what I can do back in Pune. So that's how I, you know, really. So the decision was actually 
more emotional than it was logical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a lot of people when I came back, especially my dad's friends. They were saying, "Munish, you're crazy. Why you know, are you mad?" And I said, "No, no, no. I, you know, I had to keep keep to my promise, so I came back." Anyway, the the point is a very interesting one. When I came back, was what do I do next, right? And um, so I I interviewed in a couple of places. I figured out what to do, and then a friend of my dad's came in and said, "Munish, why don't you help me?" And you know, you are a mechanical engineer doing some software. You know, it'll be very interesting in my business. And he used to sell very interesting. He used to sell um, manufactured wood. It's called synth wood, uh, which was used in cladding clean rooms, right? And like hospital rooms mm-hmm. uh, or rooms that required very high end insulation and so on. So I said, this is interesting. Rather than take up a job, why don't I actually go into you know business and see if i can grow that business so i said okay let let me you know spend some time with you so it took me around it took me to a couple of customers i i learned to sell a little bit you know and kind of experience at that time i remember going to gujarat and looking at the first dish tv setup there you know cable tv or dish slash dish tv setup i never thought india would have you know more than two channels <laughs> there was doordarshan that was that is that's it right so what, what so, year was it uh, manish So what, what year was it? 1990. Gotcha. Right. So so very interesting. Um, so you, you had like two, three, four channels, and that's it, right? Uh, all run by two thousand. So this was very interesting. So anyway, sidebar. Coming. So 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 then he's you know one one day I went to this place called Automotive Research Association of India, uh, and that is in Pune, and uh, to sell this synthwood, right? Mm-hmm. and in, interestingly so I, i i go in there and i meet this guy uh, dr harish chandra i still remember very distinctly that first meeting and he said what are you doing i said you know here's the brochure i'm helping my friend i'm not sure what i want to do he said what's your background he said i did this computational fluid mechanics you know fluidized beds and um, you know flows comp, you know uh, two phase flows and i said what are you doing selling me this synthwood <laughs> and i said no it's i'm just finding you know i came back and i'm you know figuring out what to do with my life and you know i have some leeway my mom said my dad said my wife said it's okay to take a break and i'm taking a break just trying to figure out he said no 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 forget it so his background was he was a phd from princeton he worked in volkswagen before moving to india and he made india his life it's like you know uh very interesting person and he said forget about this you're this was friday he said on monday you're coming working with me i don't want to listen just come and he said i can't pay you much uh, so you know forget about that but you know you have to come so i said okay anyway you know i had nothing to do so 3500 rupees per month and that's mm-hmm. how i came and joined arai still remembered my first paycheck uh, but he was a very interesting person and he pretty much gave me a free hand and said here's what we want to do we want to study flame propagation in a running uh, automotive engine and i'm a big fan of cars and bikes right big big fan so at that time i was extremely passionate so it was very interesting to work on engines directly so we ended up measuring real time when an engine is running what is the temperature what's the pressure 
um, 1 million samples per second. So very high-end software at that time, my nuclear electronics background helped. So a lot of the sensors, et cetera, that we used to import uh, came from what I was using in the US. So, you know, direct connection. We ended up building India's first engine data acquisition system in the RAI. And those three years were the only three years that I actually spent in a proper job, but it was not really a job. And still R&D, it was still, uh, but it, the R&D actually applied because we ended up selling the system to all of the automotive companies in India at yeah. that time, right? And it was fascinating because it was a big hype in terms of having a import substitute at that time. And this was a big import substitute in the automotive R&D uh, and regulation, regulatory industry. So that was fascinating, lots to learn there. And that's what happened after I came back. So the transition actually was, for me, was very easy. I didn't have the N plus one syndrome. I didn't have a lot of ties. You know, I finished my education. I looked at some jobs, did a couple of interviews, then, you know, emotionally decided to come back and then got into something that actually was very, very exciting for me. I think one thing I realized though, was there is always a big mindset change. And that mindset change was in Florida, uh, when, I, when I was living in Boca Raton, in almost three years, just two months, you know, so 34 months that I stayed in the US at a stretch, I never came back in those 34 months. I had honked maybe three times in mm. three years, right? And then I come back into Pune traffic, what can I say? Right? <laughs> so that kind of transition, you know, you're yeah. black and white at that time. Also, yeah. even going to the US was black and white because I'd never been in a plane before before I went to the US. So, so both these were shocks, right? You go into an environment which you're completely unfamiliar with, and then you come back to an environment which you think you are familiar with, but you're completely forgotten in three years. Simple things like that kind of give you a big shock, right? So that is what happened, but it was very interesting. I think my, you know, my, my wife told me um, that, hey, why don't you think about this as what would happen if you were in New York? And I remember driving in New York, the three times that I had honked in the three years in the US were all in New York. And she said, why don't you think you are in New York as opposed to in Pune? And that was like, you know, like this, there's a big change in my, you know, attitude and, you know, how I dealt with traffic and my stress levels and so on and so forth. And these were some of the things that just kind of made the transition extremely easy. Right? So it's all about the mindset, really. Yeah, no. Uh, in fact, like, you know, honking outside or, or honking abroad is viewed as super, super aggressive. It's, yeah. it's rare to uh, hear someone honking. But uh, and Monish, you've been, you know, creative and innovative uh, from the very beginning. I, I, I looked at that you wanted to be a pilot as well. And then you've been you know, dabbling into a bunch of things. And, and uh, would love to dive into uh, the company building of Icertis you know, yeah. the beginning and where are you today? And then, of course, uh, you know, you've built this iconic company. Uh, there's no such thing as overnight success, right? We want to hear, were there times where you thought, you know, man, this is it. Let's let's figure something new out now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Many times in my life. And so after this area, I think, you know, I started my own company with a um, friend of mine who I went to school with in Boca Raton. Uh, that was my first company. And then, you know, I ended up, actually being part of or founding, you know, either a very early participant or founding six more 
And the last one before I served this was a company called Plate Logic, which was a East Coast startup, Boston-based. And uh, we went public on the NASDAQ in 2007. We had very good traction, right? I built all of the India R&D. Um, you know, we were running the R&D. There's very fascinating stories in terms of, you know, how that came about. Uh, but uh, but we, you know, we ended up going public on the NASDAQ in 2007. 2006 was a very kind of bad year overall for the markets. So 2007, as the markets bounced back, we had the most successful tech IPO that year. So that itself going IPO public, you know, going through that whole process was very, very, um, uh, you know, very good learning opportunity. It was fascinating. And then 2008, we sold uh, Blade Logic to BMC Software. And so I was coming out of that acquisition and I never worked in a large company before. We had gone through two acquisitions before. So I'd worked in large company as part of the acquisition and got out in my with my first, as soon as I got a chance, right? So I'd always worked in startups. Uh, BMC is a beautiful, actually very nice company, very good company. I really respect it. But I was, you know, antsy because I'd never done this before, right? Working in a large company. Samir, who's my co-founder in Isertis, was actually uh, the CEO of a company called Aztec Soft. And as it happened, again, very serendipitous, right? Uh, serendipitous. Um, you, so he, he sold Aztec Soft to Mindtree. So there was an acquisition. So he also went through an acquisition at the same time that you know, I was going through an acquisition. And I knew him because of my first co-founder when I came back to the US. Uh, they went to the same school. And we started talking and we said, Yar, ye, ye to we, we don't want to do this um, you know, uh, thing. We should look at a new company. But the interesting thing is the first conversation, conversation we had in terms of starting a new company was, how can we build a consequential company? We did not talk what we will build, new idea, product idea, platform idea, money, revenue, acquisition, you know, mm -hmm. what are the milestones, nothing. We actually started the conversation with how can we build a consequential company? I think that's probably what happens when you come to a stage in life where it is interesting to go through some success uh, and also learn a lot and be open about, you know, that you're not the smartest the smartest person in the world. That revelation is actually very interesting. Then, you know, you pivot your thoughts around it. Uh, and luckily that's what happened. So serendipitously, I, we came together and we said, okay, let's, let's start with the idea of building a consequential company, which means I think the big thing, I, one big thing that happened because of that thought was we never ended taking a decision which was short term. Mm -hmm. We always thought, three to five years, at least into the future, at least, if not more, right? So hiring, raising money, uh, figuring out customers, thinking about product market fit, thinking about profitability and how the company would run were never short-term decisions. We planned them out very carefully, right? Which meant that we never ran out of money in the beginning stages. We always had a services business to fulfill it. Now, most companies, which I have gone through and made the mistakes of, as soon as you say, I want to build a product, but I'll start with services, is doomed. Because, you know, services is easy money. You keep getting money and then it's very hard to get go, give up that revenue. But we did because we were so disciplined and focused on the long term, not on the short term. We knew what we wanted, right? And we always wanted to build a product company. And I think that thought was extremely, extremely fundamental 
to what we did next, right? And there were a lot of things there. We we said we'll build ERP surround software, and we we so we we tried different things. We tried product market fit, and we landed. You know that in itself is a story. We landed on CLM uh, to be a focus area, and 2015 was the first year where we raised our first institutional round. Um, and it was very interesting because we didn't have too many angel investors, one or two, because just because we wanted them on, uh, you know, invested in us as opposed to needing the money. Uh, but we were very disciplined at that time. We made a lot of mistakes on the way, countless mistakes on the way. But I think the fundamental things of having the thought of building a consequential company and thinking long term were very, very instrumental to what we did and the decisions that we made. Even our organizational building was always started from the top. We didn't kind of stint on, you know, who to um, who to hire. Started from the top, you know, then build on. Started from the top, then build on. Did that with engineering, did that with sales, did that with pre-sales, did that with support. Almost every, um, you know, department that you usually need uh, in a software company, we started from the top. And that, I think that also helped quite a bit. Um, so that's that's essentially how we got started. You know, lots of things happened in between and we ended up being, again, serendipity plays a big part in how a company evolves, as you know. And serendipity in terms of getting a customer like Microsoft as your first customer at a global scale, 160,000 users, 75 different countries, 50 different languages that you have to implement in, gives us, gave us that whole approach of, hey, I want to build a platform, not a product. Mm-hmm. And I think that played into the technology side now in terms of, you know, what we ended up doing in Isertis. We did not build a product. We never thought about this as features and a list of things that we wanted to do for a customer and then many customers. We always thought about, hey, we'll build a platform on which we can build more than one product if we wanted. And, you know, 500 different features that were very common. So I think that mindset, because we're looking a little bit long term, uh, than any of my other companies or ones that I was part of um, actually was very, very interesting. Yeah, no, you've been uh, definitely very methodical uh, while building Isertis and, and thinking long-term and thinking in systems. And uh, and Monish, when you moved back, you know, 1990, there was no such thing as Indian technology ecosystem. Fast forward to today, yeah. uh, you know, I'm getting pings almost every other day. Uh, people are asking me, hey, you know, how should we plan our move back to India? Because it's just booming right now. And it's going to keep on booming. Yeah. And, you know, what advice would you give uh, to folks, you know, who are looking to move back to India now, uh, you know, uh, with your experience? I wouldn't dare to give advice because this is a very personal decision and there's so many factors that you have to kind of uh, factor in in a move. These are always big moves, right? Mm-hmm. When you change a job, you're you're changing your what you do, you're changing the people that you work with and so on. When you change a country, you're changing the ecosystem around you and, your, and for your family. I think it's a massive decision. I don't think you can get advice from anybody in this case. I think one important thing though, what I can do is I can share what I went through and what my friends went through. A lot of friends wanted to come back. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing is, you know, if I think about opportunity, I think this, these are trends, you know, you know, the, the market is doing well. So you invest in stocks. That's not how you actually, you know, have an investment strategy. Mm 
So the market is booming in India and you're getting a lot of money being raised and lots of action is one ingredient. It's not the only thing that should force that move. I think that is, that's how I've kind of come to look at it. I think I firmly believe that India is the next land of opportunity. I think the young population, the dynamics of, you know, politics and commerce and the state of business and the talent and then the geopolitical, you know, whatever China is going through and the rest of the world is going through. If you take all of this together, never in the history of the modern India uh, after independence have so many things come to be in favor of the country. Yeah. Never, ever. Right? Totally agreed. And that means it's the opportunity is there, no doubt about it. But that is not the only reason why you you should be moving. I think that's that's what I wanted to stress because this is an ecosystem move, right? The second thing is, I think it is all about your mindset. You know, as I said, this traffic, driving in New York and driving in Boca Raton and driving in Pune, you just have to get into this mindset that I'm not in Boca, I'm in New York. And then I'm not in New York, New York I'm in Pune. And then, you know, just learn from the experience that you, you have had and apply it and actually become a better driver. I think that becomes very interesting, right? So you come with that mindset. You don't want to replicate what you were doing in the US when you come to India, but you want to unlearn. And then what you've learned, you want to use as experience to do something new. I think people forget that. People try to replicate their life. And that never works in my mind, right? This is not, this is not like a digital twin that now starts living in India suddenly, Right. This is something that is you, that is you personally and, you know, the people around you and they are very special and they're very different and they're very unique and they have their own approach to life. And you have to kind of figure that out. The last thing I think from, an, from my personal experience perspective is that, you know, people often, at least my friends and the people around me that I've talked to often make the mistake of um, wrongly recognizing the fact that, hey, in India, you know, things will be easier, right? Um, and not from a, you know, people know that it is hard. I'm not saying they'll, they'll come with the fact that it, things will be easier, but even professionally, mm -hmm. people come with the idea that, hey, this ecosystem, you know, I'll do something different. I think what you need to figure out in my mind is, do you have the mindset and the capability to actually do what people are doing in India today. Not just come from the US and expect to meld in and be successful. I think that is another thing that in my mind, people lose track of that. Is this really for me or am I doing this because there's you know, so much excitement? Right? Yeah. Or I'm doing this because my, I want to do this for my parents and oh, by the way, the side effect is, you know, I can be an entrepreneur. Right. Or I can work in a startup or I can, you know, raise money, whatever that is. Right. I don't think that works. I think this, all of this has to come down in a de very deliberate plan in terms of what you want to do and, and evaluation, you know, literally a SWOT analysis of, am I ready for this? And obviously you don't have to overthink this, but you definitely have to think this through. Yeah. Right. So no, I, I, I'm totally with you on that. And, and especially, you know, as, as you said, you know, people think that once they move back to India, things would be easier. And I don't think it's that way because even the Indian eco uh, tech ecosystem is very getting, it's getting competitive, right? The, you know, we have very good talent, so it won't be that easy, but, uh, but, you know, totally agreed with you. You need to have the right mindset 
and you have to think long term it would be 10 20 years and and it should be you know really ready for you know what you're getting into yeah. and uh, and monish so you know in hindsight were there some things you know that you learned from your experience in the us and that ended up becoming valuable when you moved back to india massive massive learning right um and so so i i actually walk you through uh, quickly um as much as possible when i spent uh, almost 3 years doing my masters and halfway to my phd um the first 3 months uh, when i went to boka and you have to relate to the fact that i had never flown in my life i did not know as much about america as people do nowadays you know the only things i had seen american were movies that do mm-hmm. you know crappy western movies i didn't know the real america right i didn't know how people behaved so you have to kind of you know keep that in perspective when i actually went in the first thing i i remember was in mechanical engineering uh, the the department there was a competition right the competition was um, that you you had to build a mechanism i would guess not a robot but a mechanism they had a target so we had like a four story engineering building with a lobby in between so you could go to the fourth floor and look into the lobby and there was a target that was placed in the center of the lobby and what you had to do was to um, send a a mechanism rolling on a cable end to end tied at the third floor in such a way that when it would release uh, something you know a heavy object right so that it would hit that target that was three floors big right so it was a problem mechanical engineering you know you kind of figure out you know how to trigger how to take care of you know speed and angle and things like that and i said yeah i can do this man this is easy i can win it and then i saw what the undergrads there could do and i was astounded astounded you know uh, that's where i learned that it is extremely extremely important to understand what you're doing before you do it right mm-hmm. you have to go experience how to build stuff before you tell others to build it right uh, it is important to experience the process of building and you know hitting the target yourself before you ask people to hit the target and i think that was an incredibly important experience that you know going deeper being hands on what did it mean and you know you extend that metaphor into the virtual world of software you cannot tell people to do things that you have not done before that's that became a mantra that was a huge learning the second thing was just how to deal with different kinds of people right in the in india it is i think the social aspect is very easy right comparatively you know people are going to be rude with you you know people are going to be very good with you depending on you know what ecosystem you go with your friends it's like a very tight family your family itself is extremely tight so you know what to expect then you go outside on the road and traffic and you know what you know people are going to be rude they're going to do stuff you know cut you things like that you know all kinds of stuff right in the us it was very unpredictable in terms of how people would react to you and especially in those days right so you ended up actually evaluating every interaction and learning from it i think i learned a lot of my people skills whatever little i have and how to engage with people at a very deep level and i made some great friends 
when they themselves never had friends. So I have a lot of friends that I made in those days where I was their best friend. And it was incredible feel. It was an incredible feeling because uh, it makes you connect to people at a much deeper level. And I, it, it helped me hugely because in all my startups, I could create around my team, I could create a sense of deep loyalty. Yeah. Right. And a, a deep sense of empathy in terms of, you know, how people react and why they react, you know, in the way that they do. And how do you keep your distance as well? Because, you know, building a company is very hard. You have to fire people. You have to be, you know, hard with people. How do you make sure that you can do it with your friends and your family is a skill that I learned that was completely invaluable. I would have never learned it in India, at least in those days, right? I was too much in my comfort zone then. And the last thing was, I loved to travel. I learned to travel then. And then, you know, that, that kind of opened up my mind to all kinds of things. My, my daughter always tells me, she's an inveterate traveler, like, you know, even bigger than I am. And, and she says, dad, that is what, you know, I loved about you and I look forward to it. And then that's what I'm doing with my life. I think travel opens up so much opportunity and so much learning. It's incredible. So those are the three, I think, things that I learned, you know, every time I go to the US, even today, I, 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 I kind of evaluate, I kind of think about, you know, what I, what I learned from that country. Uh, and obviously any place you travel, even in Europe, but US of the US is obviously special because that was my first, you know, kind of foreign experience, right? Outside India. And I think it's just incredible what you, what you get through and what you learn. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And Manish, you've had a lot of success, right? But the reality is, uh, you know, one can achieve that success by failing multiple times. In fact, you fail more than, uh, you know, the success that you get. So what do you struggle yep. with? Where did I struggle? Uh, I think... Or, so in general, or in general, what do you struggle with? Oh, even today? Yeah, yeah that's an interesting question. Yeah, I think I, uh, I struggle with empathizing with customers in terms of what they want. It's a very interesting statement. Let me kind of think about this myself a little bit. Um, you think you know what your customers want. Then you talk to them. You think you understand what they're saying. But it's very hard actually to figure out what it is, right? I still struggle. Every feature we build, everything that we do, you know, I, I give these demos to our customer advisory board members and say, hey, this is what we are thinking. They say some things, it's very hard to interpret. I struggle with it constantly, right? So now that becomes actually dangerous because now how do you build a product, you know, feature or a new kind of set of features or you go into a new area or you change your processes if you, if you struggle with that. And I think one of the things now I've learned to do a little bit, but not completely, is to kind of go to three, four people and try to figure out what is the common thread between them. You know, completely different backgrounds, different roles, different personas, and tell them about the same problem, even if they are not facing it. I, I've learned to kind of now go to people who have a completely open mind because they've not never experienced that problem and also with people who have deeply experienced that problem every day and then try to figure out what is common. I think that has helped me a little bit, but I struggle with it every day. Very, very hard. And the second thing I struggle with, which is very interesting, you know, we have, because we started with the idea of building a consequential company, we said our values are going to be very key. This is how we are going to live and grow. 
right? And this is how our company is going to build. I struggle to communicate what those values really mean. There's always examples, you know, I can be very eloquent when I want to, and I can talk about them and I can say, hey, here's the mistakes I made. And But when you actually come to it, how do you define openness? How do you define respect? How do you define fairness, teamwork? Teamwork is easy. Um, execution is easy. So we have these values called forte, fairness, openness, respect, teamwork, and execution. Teamwork and execution, you understand, people understand, easy. Fairness, openness, respect, very hard, very hard. You know, open, do I talk about, you know, what we are going through with everybody in the company in terms of competitive stuff or, you know, financial stuff or what happened in the boardroom? Where does it end? Where does openness become closeness? And where does closeness become openness? How much? How when? What are the downsides? These are gray areas. These are values that have to come from within. I think that second thing that I really, really struggle with, that is something that I keep thinking about, right? And I keep improving, hopefully. Yeah, no, there's uh, tons of moving parts to both the points that you just uh, uh, talked about. And Monish, when, you know, things are not working out or you're feeling unfocused, you know, do you have any frameworks that you use or, or in, a, in another way, maybe do you have any questions that you ask yourself to figure, you know, uh, those things? Yeah, I, I usually go through this phase maybe like once in two weeks. So it's fairly common, right? <laughs> so the first thing I do is go play is Call of Duty. I just kill a few people, you know, kind of get weapons and do stuff and just get your vent things out, right? Not that you're angry, you're just stressed or you're just thinking about a problem and you're not getting a solution. Uh, that's kind of my meditation, release, whatever you call it, right? You're just it's, it's just experience. You just forget everything else and you release all that pent up angst, energy, stress, you know, all of that comes up. So usually these are like four or five hour sessions, right? Long sessions that you just detox really. And then the question I ask myself, two questions I ask myself, hey, is this my problem? And so many times actually it's, the answers come out, it's not your problem and someone else says, tell that person to solve it right is hiring for example i can't hire good people somebody comes to me and said oh this person left and then i come back and said oh my goodness did you plan for uh, you know who was going to success succeed what's your succession plan have you actually thought about this go solve it that's your problem not mine so sometimes you know it it actually helps in asking that question yourself you know is this your problem really are you stressed out because it's you know it's not your problem sometimes the second question I ask myself is, if it is my problem, then um, how do I start from first principles, right? It could be forte, this first principles, that's our values. It could be, you know, stop thinking about what people have told you in terms of solution, what you've thought your first product, you know, step was in terms of solution, and just think about it from first principles. You know, think about the problem, understand the problem, go deep, Talk to people who are experiencing the problem. Don't do something which is superficial. I think that second step helps in understanding, empathizing with, and then hopefully figuring out a solution for the problem. I think that empathy is something that you really want when you're trying to solve a problem because that's where you usually end up with a good solution because you think it's my problem. You think you're going to experience that problem and you are solving it for yourself you will end up doing justice uh, to your customers or other associations as well. So if, 
if you don't need money or attention anymore, what would you work on outside of Isertis? I don't yet see a life outside Isertis. I think it's so exciting today and it takes up all of my uh, time, which is very interesting because, you know, this work-life balance is very interesting. Um, my family life and my professional life are all mixed up, especially with the pandemic for all of us, you know, that's been true. But I, I've been living this life for the last 11 years, right? It's it's so exciting, um, you know, I, and I, I usually, you know, I'm up till two in the morning, you know, I'm a very late um, person. I hate waking up in the morning. So I'm constantly thinking about things, both family and work at the same time. You know, very interesting combination and, you know, multitasking. And I have everything on my calendar, including family meals and, you know, time with my kids or my parents or my wife. Everything is on the calendar, right? Uh, with all of my professional meetings. So um, so that is something, I, I think the answer to that question, and very honestly, very honestly, yep. I'm going to be doing anything else really at this point. Yeah, I think I have the money because my needs are, you know, except for cars, I think my needs are very, very few and I have enough money to take care of them. I've had that for the last, by God's grace or whatever you call it, you know, God mm -hmm. or whatever, 20 years, I've never been worried about money. Um, it's a, uh, and if I had the choice, I would still be doing this. My friend, you're living the dream. Uh, you're getting to do what you love doing. Uh, not many people get to do that. And uh, so, you know, we know you because of Isertis. Uh, what do your friends know you for? They know me as a person who takes a lot of risk, jumps out of airplanes, goes scuba diving, you know, does hoverboarding at, what, 57, you know, takes a chance of breaking a leg every day. And... Uh, and I think a very good friend because a lot of trust there and people share stuff with me. I think that's how, at least how I look at, how look at I, people look at me. Uh, that's my outside in, inside out perspective, right? Uh, but, but they don't identify me as a, definitely not as, a, as an entrepreneur. They don't see me as a successful person. I don't see myself as a successful person. I think the people who can kind of disengage from the world and not be tempted by it are the people who are successful. I've, I've not yet come to that stage. I will hopefully sometime. But uh, I think that's, that's how my friends and the people who know me, my family and my kind of people who know me well, think about me. Varnish, this was great. Uh, you know, thank you for honoring your mother's promise, moving back to India and building a global SaaS company from India. And it's, it's just, you guys are just starting and really coming on the podcast and, you know, talking about your journey, company building and more about your own things. And, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people in India and Indians living abroad would be inspired uh, by your journey. And once again, thanks a lot for doing it, Manish. Thank you so much, Shiva. I really appreciate that. And thank you for having me on your broadcast.